interviewing him on the theme, is there a future for socialism? Now, as you can imagine, it was a socialist newspaper, and maybe some of you think they don't exist anymore, but we can talk about that afterwards. Um, and as you can imagine, it was a rhetorical question because it was a socialist newspaper. But anyway, I had a, a great um, two hours with Jerry, and we talked about freedom and equality. And at the end, Jerry didn't say that socialism had a future. I think because I didn't define well the term socialism and future, probably. <laughs> uh, but he also didn't say that socialism didn't have a future. And so the editors were very grateful for that because they were very, uh, they were very grateful that an Oxford important professor was actually taking very seriously still the critique of capitalism because even though he didn't say that socialism um, had a future, he did say very bad things about capitalism. <laughs> so the newspaper was very happy about that. And so my um, thanks to Jerry is not just on behalf of myself as a researcher and, and as an academic, but it's also, I think, on behalf of the activist world who may not be able to distinguish between um, aspirational and non-aspirational theory of justice, but who actually feels on their skins every day for exploitation and injustice, etc. And so what they write is obviously very relevant for them. So thanks for that as well. Um, and now I will give the floor to Mike Otuka. So um, because I wouldn't know where to begin and where to end expressing my enormous appreciation for Jerry and because I actually wouldn't be able to do it without doing a cake movie. <laughs> 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 I suppose also because I suppose also because it would be too jarring then to sort of uh, uh, become emotionally confident again and then abruptly shift into a series of devastating criticisms of his work. <laughs> <laughs> will forgive me if I refrain from any public words of gratitude and appreciation beyond those that I've just uttered and turn straight to my paper. My point of departure is a passage from On the Currency of Egalitarian Times, <coughs> and you'll see uh, there's a handout in the little um, packet, if you haven't discovered it already, um, in the little blue folder. My point of departure is a passage from on the currency of egalitarian justice, in which Jerry introduces us to his like egalitarian account of distributive justice. He writes, this is number one in the handout, a person is exploited when unfair advantage is taken of him, and he suffers from bad root luck, when his bad luck is not the result of a gamble or risk which he could have avoided. I believe that the primary egalitarian impulse is to extinguish the influence on distribution of both exploitation and root luck. Now, in hindsight, nearly 20 years on, perhaps the most striking aspect of this formula of luck formulation of luck egalitarianism, striking in so far as it sets itself, it sets it apart from other accounts, is Jerry's claim that an aversion to exploitation is among the primary motivations of a luck egalitarian. Now, in the remainder of his paper currency, Jerry only briefly elaborates on this claim, and he's not added to these words in his subsequent writings. These remarks on exploitation do not, to my knowledge, receive any sustained scrutiny anywhere within the enormous secondary literature on luck egalitarianism. In this paper, I'd like to explore this undercharted connection between exploitation and luck egalitarianism. So here's a preview, number two, the abstract. In his writings, Jerry has affirmed both that one, 
exploitation emerges only from an unjustly inegalitarian distribution, and that two, exploitation gives rise to an unjustly inegalitarian distribution. Claim one is the focus of the first section of this paper, and claim two is the focus of the second section. Now, as I shall argue in section one, Jerry runs into difficulties in dealing with cases involving, quote, cleanly generated, unquote, exploitation. When the claims he advances in his earlier writings on the relation between capitalist exploitation and property rights are combined with his somewhat later like egalitarian account of distributive justice. And then in section two, I shall turn to an assessment of Jerry's lock egalitarian claim that forcing others to pay for people's expensive indulgence is inegalitarian because it amounts to, to their exploitation. Now, what I shall do in section two is reject the claim that there's any egalitarian objection to the forced subsidy of such indulgence. Such forcing may well be unfair, but I shall argue that any such, any such unfairness fails to ground an egalitarian complaint. And I shall conclude that Jerry's account of distributive justice has a non-egalitarian as well as an egalitarian aspect. The non-egalitarian aspect is precisely his impulse to extinguish the influence of exploitation on the distribution of benefits, whereas the egalitarian aspect is his impulse to extinguish the influence of brute luck on this distribution. Now, I think each of these two impulses arises from an underlying commitment to fairness. So Jerry's account of distributive justice is therefore one of justice as fairness. Now, the phrase justice as fairness immediately conjures up John Rawls, but as the title of this paper indicates, Jerry's account of distributive justice as fairness is like egalitarian, not Rawlsian. So turning to section one, does exploitation, as Jerry claims, require an unjustly egalitarian background distribution? Now, in a paper entitled Exploitation in Marx, What Makes It Unjust? Jerry endorses the claim that, quote, all unjust exploitative flow of product from worker to capitalist requires an initial unjust distribution. Now, the key to understanding why he thinks this is to be found in an earlier paper on capitalist exploitation, a paper entitled The Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation. In that paper, Jerry maintains that in order to show that the capitalist's appropriation of, quote, part of the value of the worker's product is an instance of exploitation, and therefore that it's unjust because unfair, one must attend, in his words, to the distrib distributive background against which the labor contract is concluded. And here's why Jerry thinks that such attention must be paid to the distributive background. He says, this is a somewhat a lengthy quotation, capitalists obtain some of the value of what workers produce because capitalists do and workers do not own means of production. That is why workers accept wage offers which generate profit for capitalists. And then he says the crucial question for exploitation is therefore whether or not it's fair that capitalists have the bargaining power they do. If it is morally all right that capitalists do and workers do not own means of production, then capitalist profit need not be the fruit of exploitation. And if the pre-contractual distributive position is morally wrong, then the case for exploitation is made. And then uh, final sentence, key sentence, the case for exploitation therefore resolves itself into the question of the moral status of capitalist private property. Now to buttress his claim that capitalists who rightfully own their means of production would not necessarily exploit the workers they employ, Jerry maintains that, quote, if capitalists were morally entitled to those means of production, 
then they would surely be entitled to set terms for their use under which they receive some return for allowing these means of production to be used. Now, he notes that this point has forced, even though, quote, it does not follow that capitalists are entitled to set any terms whatsoever for their use. One can believe that capitalists are legitimate owners of means of production, but that offering wages below a certain level is nevertheless an attempt to exploit. Well, suppose, however, that capitalists had moral entitlement to full ownership of means of production. Now, I think it would follow as a conceptual matter from such full ownership of the means of production that capitalists would, in this case, be entitled to set any terms whatever for their use, as such full ownership would encompass the income right to rent these means of production to the workers on any terms they choose. Now, if, as Jerry claims, the, quote, case for exploitation resolves itself into the question of the moral status of capitalist private property, then it follows that it's only if the capitalist's moral entitlements to the means of production encompass a less than full title of ownership that they might end up exploiting by setting certain terms. <coughs> a capitalist who fully owned his means of production could not exploit his workers. Now, more generally, for Jerry, the question of whether the capitalist exploits the worker by appropriating part of the value of his product resolves into the question of whether the capitalist exercises a legitimate property right in the means of production that encompasses the right to set the terms of their use that he sets. If he does have such an extensive property right, then he does, sorry, if he doesn't have such an extensive property right, then he does not exploit. If he does have such an extensive property right, then he does exploit. Well, question. Might, however, a capitalist, or maybe some other property owner, be entitled, as a matter of the legitimate exercise of his unencumbered property rights, might he be entitled, as a legitimate exercise of his property rights, to set terms that would nevertheless be wrong of him to set, where this wrongness is explained, at least in part, by the exploitative nature of these terms. Now, I think Jerry's resolution of the question of exploitation in market transactions into the question of the moral status of the property relations that underlie these transactions appears to exclude this apparently genuine possibility of a right to do wrong where the wrongness is explained in terms of those exploitation. And, and here's an illustration of this possibility. This is number three on the handout. Consider an example of price gouging that emerges against a background of equality of advantage, which includes an equal opportunity to insure against a natural disaster where such insurance provides a reasonable risk-free option. Well, now, suppose that someone of sound mind who's competent nevertheless exercises an option not to take out insurance and ends up needing assistance when a highly improbable natural disaster strikes. Well, taking advantage of his plight, you manage to sell him necessities at an exorbitant price that's nevertheless rational for him to accept where this price is this. His binding himself to a sweatshop labor contract it seems intuitively clear that you thereby exploit him. Jerry, however, is debarred from condemning this price gouging transaction as exploitative. That he's debarred is made clear when, he, when we consider a famous case of his involving a joyful worker and an infirm capitalist that features in a piece called Marxism and Contemporary Political Philosophy. Here's the case. Jerry asks us to think of a worker who very much enjoys both his work and the wages it brings him, and who works for a wholly infirm neighbor who leads a miserable life, but who, unlike the worker, has managed to possess himself of a stock of capital. <coughs> this infirm capitalist lops off just enough of the worker's product 
so that he, the capitalist, can stay alive. We can suppose that if something like the stated capital imbalance did not obtain, then the worker would produce for himself alone and callously let his infirm neighbor die. Well, Jerry writes that, quote, Marxists are, of course, very friendly to the idea that there should be an equality of benefits and burdens among people. He maintains that this egalitarian idea suggests that the infirm person's possession and use of his capital is blameless, which implies that there's no injustice in it. The egalitarian thing to say, quoting from Jerry, about the case is that no person should be left to die, and that it's a piece of luck for the worker that he has sufficient labor capacity to sustain both himself and someone who, if unsupported, would die. It's also a piece of luck for the infirm capitalist that he has the power, through his ownership of capital, to, ex to exact support from the worker. And in the given idiosyncratic circumstances of joyful work of the infirm capitalist, Jerry concludes there's nothing wrong with his capitalist having and using that power. And then he says, a crucial passage, exploiting a person is taking unfair advantage of him. The infirm capitalist takes advantage of the joyful worker, but not an unfair one. Well, we're now in a position, turning to number four on the handout, to bring the, the, the elements of this discussion together to show why Jerry is debarred from condemning my price gouging transaction as exploitative. He's debarred because, one, he maintains that, quote, exploiting a person is taking unfair advantage of him, passage just quoted. Two, he believes that such unfairness implies injustice. Take my word for it. Three, he endorses the claim that, quote, all unjust exploitative flow requires an initial unjust distribution. That's from an earlier quotation. Four, he affirms a luck egalitarian account of distributive justice, according to which a distribution is unjust if and only if there's involuntary disadvantage, where such involuntary disadvantage is that, quote, for which the sufferer cannot be held responsible since it does not appropriately reflect choices that he has made or is making or would make. And five, the price gouging in question arises in the absence of involuntary disadvantage, as the case is set up. Well, one might propose the following out, way out of the problem I've just posed for Jerry. This escape route involves his abandonment of the claim in clause four above that the absence of involuntary disadvantage is a sufficient condition of distributive justice. And it is in this, this, this way out would involve a retreat to the claim that the um, absence of involuntary disadvantage is merely a necessary condition of distributive justice. And I am indebted to Andrew Williams for pointing out that Jerry need not affirm uh, a sufficient condition as well as a necessary condition. Now, there are, moreover, one might note, a number of different possible systems of property rights that would ensure the absence of involuntary disadvantage, and not any system of property rights that would ensure the absence of involuntary disadvantage is a system of property rights that would allow for the price gouging that I described in my example. So Jerry might maintain that justice requires a selection from among all of those different property systems that would each completely eliminate involuntary disadvantage, all of one that renders exploitation impossible. The idea would be that the absence of involuntary disadvantage um, on the one hand and of opportunity for exploitation on the other hand would each cons constitute a necessary condition of a set of just property rights and that these two absences on the one hand of involuntary disadvantage and on the other hand of opportunity for exploitation would be jointly sufficient for justice. Now applying this proposal to the price gouging case, Jerry would condemn as unjust 
those systems of property rights that allow for the price gouging in my example. Now the proposed rationale for such condemnation would be the following. Even if such systems guaranteed the elimination of all involuntary disadvantage, they would be condemned as unjust by virtue of the fact that they allowed the exploitation of persons that takes the form of price gouging. Well, I think this proposal runs into the following difficulty. Given Jerry's analysis of what it is to exploit a person, Jerry appears even after such retreat to remain in no position to condemn such price gouging as exploitative. Recall that Jerry identifies the exploitation of a person with the unfair taking of advantage of him, from which it follows that he thinks unfair advantage taking is both a necessary and a sufficient condition of exploitation. Now, given the fair circumstances of equality of access to advantage in which my price gouging in my example is set, this would appear, however, to be an example in which no unfair advantage is taken. So it would follow from Jerry's analysis of exploitation in terms of unfair advantage taking that he cannot condemn such price gouging as exploitative since his necessary condition of exploitation has not been met. And moreover, Jerry could abandon this necessary condition of his analysis of exploitation in terms of unfair advantage only at the cost of having to withdraw his claim that the infirm capitalist does not exploit the joyful worker because the advantage he takes of him is not unfair. So I shall draw this section one to a close by also noting that Jerry could vindicate the claim that the price gouger exploits by taking unfair advantage of the disaster victim only at the cost of the abandonment or trivialization of his claim that unjust exploitative flow requires an initial unjust distribution. Now, turning to the um, second part of my favorite, when, when did this session begin? <laughs> Sorry. 10, 10, 15 minutes ago? Is that right? Okay. So I've only, okay, 15 minutes. Okay. Um, so I've got another half, half hour. So, okay. Um, not only does Jerry affirm that exploitation emerges only from an unjustly inegalitarian distribution, he's also affirmed that exploitation gives rise to an unjustly inegalitarian distribution. Now, in this section, I want to address that latter claim that. Um, exploitation gives rise to an unjustly inegalitarian distribution. Well, let's return to the passage from currency with which I opened this paper, number one on the handout. A person is exploited when unfair advantage is taken of him, and he suffers from bad rude luck when his bad luck is not the result of a gamble or risk which he could have avoided. I believe that the primary egalitarian impulse is to extinguish the influence on distribution of both exploitation and rude luck. Now, in elaboration of his remark, that a primary egalitarian impulse is to extinguish the influence on distribution of exploitation, Jerry asks us to, quote, consider people who convert resources into welfare inefficiently, so that if welfare is to be equalized, they must be given twice the resources that ordinary converters get. And then he notes that, for takes as an example, that some of these people are inefficient converters of resources into welfare for the following reason because they're, quote, neckless or negligent or feckless in a morally culpable way, and this is that way. They buy their food at Fortnum's because they cannot be bothered to walk up to the Barrett Street market. Now, Jerry maintains that there's the following egalitarian case for holding these um, Fortnum shoppers responsible for the cost of their voluntary choices, even if this leads to an inequality in people's levels of welfare. He says, number five on the handout, 
Now, there seems to be, to me, to be an egalitarian objection to a policy of ensuring that the Fordham's customers' welfare is as high as everyone else's. So he's offering, at this point, an egalitarian objection to equality of welfare as opposed to equality of opportunity for welfare. He says, now, there seems to me to be an egalitarian objection to the policy of ensuring that the Fortnum's customers' welfare level is as high as everybody else's. It seems to me that when other people pay for his readily avoidable wastefulness, there is pro tanto an exploitative distribution of burdens which egalitarians <coughs> should condemn. Quality of welfare should here be rejected not because of other values, but because it's inegalitarian and should be replaced with something superior, namely quality of opportunity for welfare. Now, uh, just a footnote, Jerry describes the Fortnum's customer as wasteful because he converts resources into welfare inefficiently by spending more money than is necessary to achieve a given level of welfare. For those of you who are familiar, uh, Fortnum's is a, is, is a store that sells very expensive goods. Now, uh, it will help to unpack these claims in the quotation that constitutes number five on the handout. If we bear in mind that Jerry believes that a distribution of burdens is exploitative, when it's brought about through the exploitation of people, where the exploitation of people is the unfair taking advantage of people. And I believe, moreover, that Jerry maintains that the distribution is objectionable from an egalitarian point of view, when and because it reflects unfair advantage taking. Now, um, important um, um, assumption that uh, will um, inform the remainder of this talk, I should have placed it on the handout, but I, I didn't. In the remainder of this talk, I shall grant Jerry his claim that one exploits people when one takes unfair advantage of them. So I'm not going to call into question Jerry's analysis of exploitation of people in terms of unfair advantage taking of them. While granting this claim, what I want to do is query the connections that Jerry draws for the remainder of this paper between unfair advantage taking and egalitarianism. So what I want to do is first pose the question of how it is precisely that anyone is taken unfair advantage of by a policy of ensuring that the Fordham's customer's uh, welfare level is as high as everybody else's by subsidizing the expensive indulgence of the Fordham's shopper. So after asking how it is that anyone's taken unfair advantage of by the subsidy of Fordham's shoppers, I shall then ask whether there's anything objectionable from an egalitarian point of view about the manner in which people are taken unfair advantage of by the subsidy of the Fordham shopper. Now my answer to this latter question is that there isn't any egalitarian objection to the subsidy of the Fordham shopper, even that involves unfair advantage taken of some sort. Well, turning to the first question first. Now even if one grants that the policy of subsidizing Fordham's shoppers takes advantage of the Barrack Street market shoppers by extracting taxes from the responsible Barrack Street market shoppers and transferring the revenue to the feckless Fortnum shoppers. There remains the question of whether this tax and transfer policy that takes unfair advantage of the Barrack Street market, uh, this tax and transfer uh, policy actually takes any advantage of the Barrack Street market shoppers, which is unfair. Well, it might be argued that though this taxation of the Barrack Street market shoppers to transfer the Fortnum shoppers is the taking advantage of the Barrett Street market shoppers. It's not an unfair taking advantage. It's not unfair that such an advantage is taken of the Barrett Street market, market shoppers. One might say, given that each member of society had an equal opportunity to avoid this tax by shopping exclusively at Fortnum's, 
Well, consider, for example, the following <laughs> response that um, Robert Bondervain and Philippe Pompariz once offered uh, to Jan Elster's charge that their universal ground proposal, quote, goes against a widely accepted notion of justice that is unfair for the able-bodied people to live off the labor of others, and Elster's related charge that most workers would correctly, in my opinion, see the basic proposal as <laughs> a recipe for exploitation of the industrious by the lazy. Here's Philippe's <coughs> reply, at least in his earlier work. He asks, what's unfair about living off the labor of others when everyone is given the same possibility? If the latter envy the former's idleness, why don't they follow suit? Formal fairness is at least as well respected when everyone enjoys the freedom not to work as when no one does, as would be the case in a socialist society strictly ruled by the principle to each according to his labor. Now, although I was initially convinced by this reply to Elster, I now think it unsound since I've come to the conclusion that there's such a thing as an equal opportunity to take unfair advantage of others. The fact, for example, that each person has an equal opportunity to free ride off the contribution of others in public goods cases doesn't immunize those who do free ride against the charge that they've acted unfairly. It doesn't uh, counteract the charge of unfairly free riding. You say, look, everyone else has the opportunity to free ride. The free riding is rightly condemned as unfair, which is to say as a violation of the principle of fair play, which roughly states that if one enjoys a benefit available to all, and this benefit exists only because of the sacrifice of others, then one is obliged to share in the sacrifice necessary to provide this benefit to all. Well, given that I've shown that um, even when everyone has an equal opportunity to uh, take advantage, the advantage taking might still be unfair in the, in the free riding case, I want to raise the following question. Might it be possible for Jerry to vindicate his claim that unfair advantage is taken to the Barrett Street market shoppers by establishing that the avoidably wasteful Fortnum's consumer is free riding on the restraint of the Barrett Street market shoppers? Well, I want to argue that such vindication is unavailable. Now, in paradigmatic cases of free riding, the free rider reaps a benefit over others who make a sacrifice. I mean, think of free riding on a train where the benefit relative to others is that of transportation for free rather than for a fee. That's a benefit you reap over others when you ride on the train. And think also of familiar cases involving public goods, which have a similar structure. Now, number six on the handout. The fact that one reaps a benefit over others is, I think, essential to the charge of unfairness. That's leveled against a free rider. That fact is, in any event, essential to any charge of unfairness that's plausibly regarded as an egalitarian objection to the distribution of burdens to which free riding gives rise. There is, however, no gain of any advantage over others in the case of avoidably wasteful Fortnum's consumers. There's no such gain over others, since it's not possible for the Fortnum's consumer to improve his position relative to others by indulging in avoidable waste. This is impossible since, by hypothesis, the redistribution of wastefulness induces is one that results in everyone's enjoying the same level of welfare. So the effort he saves by not having to walk to the Barrack Street market is, of course, factored into the welfare equalizing redistribution. Now, if some but not others spend profligately, then resources are redistributed from these others to the profligate to the point at which each enjoys the same level of welfare. So you don't receive the benefit of others in this case. Now, although for the reasons I've just provided, the Fortnum's consumers do not gain any advantage over others, might they nevertheless take advantage of others 
in some way that doesn't involve such gain over them. Now, one might claim that the avoidably wasteful take advantage of others insofar as they impose a burden on them. Now, perhaps they do take advantage of others in this regard, but given that they impose an identical burden on themselves and therefore don't gain any advantage over others, I fail to see how any advantage taking is inegalitarian. Of course, one could mount a utilitarian or efficiency-based objection to this avoidable wastefulness. You know, it's because uh, they shop at Fordham's rather than the Barrick Street Market that everyone's welfare ends up less well off, but uh, still equal. It seems like you can uh, raise an efficiency or a utilitarian objection to such avoidable wastefulness, but these appear to be non-egalitarian objections. Is there any, any objection from the point of view of equality of subsidizing Fordham shoppers? Now, to try to discern whether there's any egalitarian objection to the subsidy of Fortnum's consumers, it will, I think, be useful to reflect on some partially analogous cases that involve the subsidy of the indulgent. Well, let's first consider the following case that manifestly involves the transfer of the fruits of the productive labor of the industrious to the idle. Well, suppose that everyone's equal in his, in his capacities and his abilities to convert resources into welfare. Suppose further that each is given an equally valuable share of natural resources, which takes the form of his own private orchard of fruit trees. Now, if one does not work at all in this example, suppose one starves. Suppose if one works each morning, then one will have harvested just enough fruit to meet basic needs. And that further harvesting in the afternoon yields luxuries akin to the finest spread of fruit that Oxford College provides its fellows for dessert. Now suppose for the sake of simplicity that the, at, at the outset everyone chooses to work all morning and all afternoon and that, as a result each attains an equal level of welfare. Necessities for himself in the morning, luxuries in the afternoon. Now imagine that one person decides to just stop gathering fruit altogether. Now if this society of people with orchards is governed by a choice insensitive principle of equality and welfare, then all the others will be required to transfer some of the fruits of their labor to this individual who decides not to do any work at all. Now bear in mind that under such a policy of unconditional equality of welfare, this individual who does no work gains no advantage over others by not working. Everyone ends up with an equal level of welfare and one which is lower than it would have been if everyone had worked a full day on his own behalf. Since all workers are less well off when they must spend part of their day harvesting fruit for the sake of strangers. Now the welfare of the workers would be lower to the point at which they have raised the welfare of the non-worker enough to make it just as high as their own. Well, there seems to be an objection to the transfer from the industrious to the idle, but what's the nature of this objection? Well, the industrious are forced by the state, as a condition of working at all, work some of the day, not for their own sake, but for the sake of another. This might seem to involve unfair advantage taking of them, even though nobody gains any advantage over anyone else. And the case also resembles paradigmatic cases of capitalist exploitation of the worker in certain significant respects. Though I uh, leave aside the question of whether it's exploitation and focus on the question of whether there's um, unfairness. Now, although Jerry's Fortnum's case involves consumers rather than producers, perhaps we can assimilate his Fortnum's case to this case of productive fruit harvesters by noting that there's a following respect in which the Fortnum's consumer benefits from the metaphorical, even if not the actual fruit, of the labor of others. They benefit from the gains in efficiency of consumption 
yielded by the effort that others expend to walk all the way to the Barrack Street market to do their shopping. Well, I think even if Jerry is able in this manner to assimilate the Fortnum's case to cases such as the fruit harvesters, where that involves the exploitation of productive labors, I don't think he'll be entitled thereby to draw the conclusion that there is any egalitarian objection to the subsidy of Fortnum's consumers. For recall that, as we learned in section one of my talk, Jerry appeals to be debarred from describing the, uh, this case involving industries fruit harvesters as a case of unfair advantage taking, since the forced transfer arises against a background of equality of benefit and burden. And moreover, recall that Jerry has argued, by means of his example of the joyful labor and the infirm capitalists, that a forced transfer of some of the value of the worker's product does not amount to the unfair taking advantage to, uh, unfair taking advantage when the transfer arises against this background of equality. Well, here's Jerry's task. His task is to show how there is any objection from an egalitarian point of view to the subsidy of the avoidably wasteful. And I think that task becomes all the more difficult once we recognize that his objection to such subsidy is not restricted to instances that involve any manifest taking the fruits of others' labors where such taking of the fruits of a person's labor might be regarded as a taking of advantage of him, even if it results in nobody's gaining any advantage over others. Jerry's objection to the subsidy of the avoidably wasteful also extends to cases such as the following, which appear to involve no taking of the fruits of the labor of others. And this is number seven on the handout. Well, in this case, the manic case, suppose that there's no productive labor, and it's just a matter of consumption of natural resources that takes the form of manna from heaven. Let's suppose that everyone is provisionally allocated equal shares of manna from heaven each morning. Suppose, moreover, that if one consumes manna in the afternoon, it yields twice as much welfare per unit of manna as it would yield if one consumes manna in the morning. Now, at the outset, everyone sensibly consumes manna in the afternoon where it does twice as much good. Now, suppose that one person adopts a practice of consuming manna in the morning. Now he will then, under a policy of unconditional equality of welfare, be entitled to an extra helping of manna in order to ensure that his welfare is as high as everybody else's at the end of the day, thereby reducing everyone else's provisional share of manna. Now although this one person's chosen pattern of consumption is objectionably wasteful in a manner that's costly to all, it appears not to reap him any advantage over others, and all fortiori, not to reap him any unfair advantage. Uh, uh, sorry, it, although this person's chosen pattern of consumption, where he consumes manna in the morning, where it does half as good as in the afternoon, is objectionably wasteful in a manner that's costly to all, it appears not to reap him any advantage over others, and all fortiori not to reap him any unfair advantage over others. So how exactly does this uh, unconditional welfare egalitarian policy of subsidy of the people who consume manna in the morning against equality. Well, Jerry has replied that this individual who consumes manna in the morning reaps the following unfair advantage over others. This is a case in which the person who consumes manna in the morning is self-indulgent. Uh, this is something that Jerry has mentioned in the conversation. This is a case in which the person who consumes manna in the morning is self-indulgent, whereas the others make an effort in deferring their gratification. Therefore, the morning consumer reaps the fruits of the labor of self-discipline of others. Now, 
what follows is a, is a um, rational reconstruction of a, uh, of a conversation that Jerry had about this case um, uh, earlier. Now, in an attempt to shut down this line of objection, <coughs> I responded to Jerry by constructing a case that doesn't involve temptation and self-discipline. I asked Jerry to suppose that it's no easier or more enjoyable to consume manna with one hand rather than the other, but if one consumes manna with one's right hand, then the manna yields twice as much welfare than it would if one consumed it with one's left hand. Now those who are compensated under a policy of unconditional equality of welfare for consuming less efficiently with their left hand would not enjoy the fruits of the labor of self-discipline of others. Well, Jerry replied, and I think nicely, that this case is problematic for my purposes, since we might have good reason to doubt that someone who consumed with his left hand was responsible for his choice, given how senseless such a choice would be. And if he isn't responsible for his choice, then a lucky Galatarian would not object to its subsidy, and this case is thereby rendered irrelevant to the present debate over whether a lucky Galatarian has a Galatarian reason to refrain from subsidizing wasteful choices for which people um, seem uh, to, to be responsible. Now, I also offer the following rebuttal to Jerry's claim that the wasteful gain unfair advantage over others in my original mana case involving self-discipline and delayed gratification, where if you consume mana in the afternoon, it does twice as much good as you consume in the morning. Now, I maintain that those who consume in the morning don't end up gaining anything from their um, indulgence relative to those who delay consumption till the afternoon, since the immediate consumers avoidance of the burden of self-discipline of the delayed consumers is factored into a determination of the absolute and relative level, welfare levels of each person. Now, Jerry countered that such self-discipline might not be a burden, it might merely be difficult rather than costly. And as Jerry once brilliantly noted, difficulty and costliness are not one and the same. He noted that it's difficult to cycle to Heathrow with someone sitting on one's bike but this might not be costly, as one might enjoy the exertion and the challenge. It is, by contrast, costly to write a large check to Oxfam. This isn't difficult, as it merely involves a few strokes of one's pen. Now, my rejoinder was that if it's not costly to um, um, wait till the afternoon before one consumes manna, then this case reduces to a version of the irrelevant right-hand, left-hand case. But self-discipline need not be costless. So let's stipulate that it's costly in this case. We therefore have a case in which one, people don't end up gaining relative to others from their morning indulgence, and two, this morning indulgence is something for which they can be held responsible rather than as in the right-hand, left-hand case, an utterly senseless choice. Now, morning indulgers aren't behaving in senseless fashion because they do gain in the short term by enjoying an immediate gratification, thereby foregoing the cost of self-discipline. Hence, there is an explicable motivation for people to consume when they do. They don't, however, end up enjoying any gain over others because this short-term gain is more than a race in the long term. These morning consumers behave in no more senseless manner, and therefore they're no more exempt from responsibility than the rest of us do when we end up worse off in the long run because we procrastinate out of an immediate weakness of will. Now, Jerry would condemn redistribution to be avoidably wasteful in the cases I've been discussing, namely the fruit pickers case and the manna gatherers case. But, but it's difficult to discern any egalitarian grounds for such condemnation of redistribution to be avoidably wasteful. One might try to supply um, 
Well, yeah, let, let me just um, uh, skip over this um, attempt to provide egalitarian grounds, which I think fails. Now, for all I've said, there remains, this is aid on the handout, the following charge that we can level against the practice of subsidizing the wasteful. This charge is that people should internalize the cost of their readily avoidable wastefulness, as it isn't right that others be made to pick up the tab for one's effectiveness, and that people should also be allowed to internalize the benefits of their voluntary industry or parsimony, as one is not required to share the fruits of such conscientious behavior, to, to share the fruits of your conscientious behavior with the feckless. Now it follows from this principle of internalization of voluntary costs and benefits that we do not begrudge the fact that the industrious and parsimonious are better off relative to the wasteful than they would have been under a choice and sensitive principle of unconditional equality and welfare. But the question is, are there any good egalitarian grounds to affirm this principle of internalization number eight on the handout? This principle of internalization of voluntary costs and benefits might be thought naturally to follow from a commitment to fairness. Whether or not it amounts to their exploitation, it will strike many as nevertheless unfair for the industrious or farmers <coughs> to pay for the indulgence of the wasteful. One might think, moreover, that this unfairness is sufficient to establish an egalitarian objection to unconditional equality of welfare and a corresponding preference for equality of opportunity for welfare or Jerry's preferred equality of access to advantage. The fact, however, that it's unfair that other people be required to pick up the task <coughs> at the cost of one's choices does not imply that there's an egalitarian objection to such externalization of the costs of one's voluntary choices. And note that not every charge of unfairness constitutes an egalitarian objection. The following claims of unfairness, for example, do not constitute an egalitarian objection. A, the claim that an unqualified principle of equality of access to advantage would give rise to the unfairness that whether or not I'm required to give up one of my two good eyes depends on whether as a matter of factors beyond my control or happens to be another who's blind. For B, Dworkin's principle of abstraction supporting <coughs> argument that banning gift giving is unfair because it discriminates against people with a certain set of preferences. I don't think that's actually an egalitarian objection. Or C, the claim that it's unfair that one does not get paid the value of one's labor contribution. That's clearly not. Uh, an egalitarian objection of the sort we're familiar with, or D, claim that it's unfair to hire other than the person who will do the job best. Well, I believe that, and this is nine on the handout, although the choice sensitivity of Jerry's account of distributive justice derives from considerations of fairness, such choice sensitivity is not an egalitarian aspect. Note that the egalitarian brute luck eliminating aspect of Jerry's account of distributive justice also derives from considerations of fairness. It's unfair that um, some people are just, as a matter of things outside of their control, better off than others. So I think we should conclude that Jerry's account of distributive justice has a non-egalitarian as well as an egalitarian aspect, yet each aspect is anchored in the value of fairness. It's therefore a mistake for Jerry to conceive of distributive justice as equality, as he does in rescuing justice and equality, when he proclaims that, quote, I would now say that distributive justice is some kind of equality. Now the distinction between egalitarian and non-egalitarian objections that Jerry draws in currency does not, as we can now see, perfectly align with the distinction between objections of justice and those objections that appeal to values other than justice. And this lack of alignment is illustrated by the fact that 
the objection to catering to expensive tastes is, I think, an objection based on considerations of justice, but it's not an egalitarian objection. Jerry's identification of justice with equality leads him to mistakenly align these two different distinctions. Rather than identifying justice with equality, Jerry should conceive of justice as fairness. Now, Jerry's account of what I'm calling justice as fairness is, as we all know, a luck egalitarian account. It is also, of course, a non-Rawlsian account. As Jerry explains when he writes in the opening pages of Rescuing Justice and Equality, that, quote, the Rawlsian approach denatures justice since it cannot recognize that if something is unfair and is to that extent unjust, the identification of the best all things considered rules of regulation principles of justice excludes that recognition. In short, and as I declare in the title of this paper, Justice as Fairness, Luck Egalitarian, Not Rawls. Okay, a bit too much gratitude has already been expressed here. <laughs> so uh, so uh, instead of gratitude, I'll, I'll just offer up a counterfactual, which is, um, if it were not for Jerry's teaching and support, I would most likely be a middle manager in a multinational company at the moment, uh, wondering whether I still had a job on Monday. <laughs> so, um, Mike is right, surely, that the passage he highlights at the beginning of his handout has been neglected in the subsequent discussion. I, like him, I don't know of anyone who has mentioned this notion of exploitation in relation to lack egalitarianism. Now, why does that appear? Why does that word exploitation appear there? Um, there are many sides to Jerry's work, but it's worth distinguishing two sides. One is neo-Marx, and the other is neo-Dworkin. I think it's possibly the first term that, time that term's ever been used. Um, and there's a question about whether these things fit together, the, the Marxist side and the Dworkinian side. So if you think about Jerry's neo-Marx writing, I'm not now thinking of Karl Marx's theory of history, but the writings on proletariat freedom and exploitation. We have a class analysis, and this is a natural home of the notion of exploitation. In the Dworkinian writings, there's no class analysis. It's not obvious that exploitation would be a key concept or even a useful one. In fact, if you compare the Marxist and Dworkinian approaches, there are certain peculiarities that now become apparent. So in the luck egalitarian literature, there are people who receive salaries, but we're not told who's paying them or under what conditions. And there are consumers, there are entrepreneurs, uh, these are self-employed market gardeners, and um, I'm maybe wrong about this, but certainly in the major works of egalitarianism, I can't think of a single example of one person paying another person. Um, we, we have examples of people making others slaves, for example, considering whether they should make each other slaves, but we don't have anything about employment relations, and so it would be odd actually to find anything much about exploitation in a Marxist sense, in those like egalitarian writings. And I think um, Mike does a, 
an excellent job of showing the difficulties of putting these two things together. So the examples we had of the uh, infirm capitalist and joyful worker, uh, the example of cleanly generated capitalism, I think show the difficulty of taking a Marxist definition of exploitation and applying it to capitalism. I don't think it works, and I think Mike shows how that is going to be done. But still, I mean, the notion of exploitation does ring true to some degree within Lucky Galatarians. The contrast, I think, between the two notions of exploitation is this, that the Marxist, Marxist exploitation is some sort of unjust extraction, relying on some sort of background power imbalance. That's a classic Marxist view. Within the Dworkinian literature, or neo-Dworkinian literature, the notion of exploitation is much more to do with free riding. So people who are on a level in some respect, but some taking advantage of others. And so there is a genuine notion of exploitation. I don't think this is a fake notion of exploitation, but I think it's different to the Marxist notion. And it would be surprising, actually, if they were put together in any uh, illuminating way. I mean, I'm, I'm not ruling that out, but I just don't see how it is to be done. I think Mike has shown how difficult that would be. So what I want to do is to concentrate on the neo-Dworkinian free-riding cases, and especially the Fortnum's example, where I think what Mike argues here is both powerful and surprising. So the surprise is that um, it looks rather hard to maintain an egalitarian objection to free riding. Yet it looked from the beginning like you ought to be able to do that. It looked somehow that free riding, the Fortnum case, was an assault on equality in some way. But uh, Mike has shown it's very difficult to maintain this. Now, the key point, I think, in the part of the argument that I want to consider, the key point Mike makes, is that in an egalitarian society, or at least a society of equality of welfare, it looks like you cannot, in the end, gain any advantage by free riding. And the reason for that is that you're not entitled to a higher welfare level than anyone else. And so if you temporarily get a welfare advantage by free riding, then adjustments will be made, and, every, and your share, just as everyone else's, will be reduced. So free riding turns into a very wasteful type of activity. Now, um, this point I don't think has been picked up, but it is very similar to a point that um, comes up quite a lot when one talks about something now looks very similar, which is deliberately cultivating expensive tastes. And I don't know whether other people have the same experience, but when I try to teach the examples of Louis, there's a, there's a sort of obstacle doing it. So Louis deliberately cultivates his champagne tastes. He doesn't, in the end, get more welfare than others. He's not allowed more welfare than the others, so we have to redistribute welfare. So by deliberately cultivating expensive tastes, he's making sure that there's less welfare for everyone, including him. And so this just seems, as Mike said, I think this is quoting Gary, senseless. And so the debate the key debate within luck egalitarianism, which is focused around this example of deliberately cultivated expensive tastes, just looks mad now. You know, why would anyone do it? You know, why would anyone deliberately cultivate 
expensive tastes. I, I tell my students, you learn something here, what you should do is cultivate cheap tastes, <laughs> like I do. Um, and, then, and then you'll get more for your money. Um, and that, in fact, there ought to be an egalitarian duty to develop culture. They're cheap tastes, and we'll get more welfare. So this all looks a bit strange. Now, Dworkin himself picked this up. And it, um, he used the example, this is in Sovereign Virtue, in discussing Jerry. Um, he put the point in terms of bars addicts and tick addicts, which may not be the most illuminating way of making the point. Um, but, but what I think, is, when, when we think about these cases, the case of Louis, you know, why would Louis develop his expensive tastes, knowing that he's going to get more welfare, less, sorry, less welfare as a result of it? If he carried on drinking beer and eating hen's eggs, he would have more welfare, slightly more welfare, than if he drinks champagne. Well, clearly, the reason he would be doing it is because he doesn't value welfare as much as the snob value of drinking champagne. That is, there's something else he values other than his welfare. And this is the same thing, I think, in the Fortnum's case. The reason why someone would go to Fortnum's rather than Berwick Street Market, even though they would get a reduced level of welfare, is that they value something other than welfare. Okay. So we've, we've got a peculiarity here. that We need to make sense of these examples. We need to type of double currency justice. There's the official currency of justice, which is distributed. And someone who has a type of variant personal currency, where what they value is not the same thing as the official currency. Now, there are going to be some views of welfare where that's not possible. So if you have a type of revealed preference theory of well-being, then it's not going to be possible to make a distinction between the official and your own. But as soon as you have any objective or normative element in there, there comes a possibility that what society counts is not what you think is most valuable. So this then creates the possibility, and it won't always happen, but this then creates the possibility that someone might be able to change a pattern of consumption or change their behavior, so they're made better off in their currency, even though they and everyone else is made worse off in the official currency. So take Berwick Street Market. Suppose we have an official currency. I love the idea of shopping at Fortnite's. That's just fantastic. I don't care if I get less of whatever it is society is counting. I just love this. So I'm going to go off and shop at Fortnum's. And now there's less to go around for everyone. But I don't care because I've got more than um, I would have had by the other distribution. Well, um, how should we analyze this? How can we understand this? Have I done anything which is sort of counter-egalitarian? Is there any egalitarian criticism? done. I think we need to make a distinction between two ways in which we can think about equality in distribution. And again, there is a valuable example from Dworkin. It's not on this, exactly on this point, but it, I think it, it makes a distinction we need. So Dworkin um, has an example of, you know, we're all on the desert island, and there's a mix of apples and oranges. I happen to hate oranges. But before anything gets distributed, the auctioneer swaps all our apples for oranges for people on another island. So I hate oranges. There were apples there before. The auctioneer has converted everything into oranges. And then gives everyone an equal share. 
Now, from one point of view, we have an egalitarian distribution. Everyone has the same number of oranges. But I think Dworkin would say about this, nevertheless, I have not been treated as an equal in distribution. So that although there is an equal distribution of something, I have not been treated as an equal in that distribution. So to respond to Mike on behalf of Jerry, what I would say is that it is possible to concoct examples where even though there's an equal distribution, one person is not treating others as an equal in distribution. That is, they're getting a personal advantage and making other people worse off. Even though in the official currency everyone has the same, it's a leveling down in the official currency, in my currency I'm better off. Is this always to be condemned? Well, no, I, I just saw it, actually, when um, Mike was reading this out, that, that Jerry, in the quote on um, section five on Mike's handout, uses a term, there is pro tanto an exploitative distribution. So I don't know what you had in mind, whether the, um, the Barrett Street market wouldn't always be exploitative, but actually, you could, you could have cases using the double currency where it wouldn't be exploitative. And it would be like this. So, so suppose the official currency is something I think disfavors me against others. So I might think then it's perfectly okay to shop at Fortnum's as a type of remedial justice to make up for the fact that I haven't been treated as an equal in distribution. So what I'm doing, so by shopping at Fortnum's, what I'm doing in a sense is converting society's goods into a set that's more congenial for me. And I can do that in a remedial fashion or I can do it in an exploitative fashion. And so I think it is possible to have egalitarian, sort of counter-egalitarian exploitation, even though Mike is right that in the official currency everyone's going to be worse off. But to make that argument, you do need this type of double currency, whereby you know, what I value is not the same as what's counted. So this is a, this is a possible response that Jerry could make. Though it may be, you know, as all responses do, it may have a cost. And the cost, in this case, is rather indirect rather than direct. In that it makes us focus much more on Jerry's preferred currency. So in the famous paper, Jerry introduces the notion of advantage, which he says is a hybrid of resources and welfare. And there are very good arguments to explain why the currency can't be just resource-based, and good arguments to why it can't be welfare-based. We seem to need both. But we also have what motivates the Berwick Street Market example is an observation that different people convert resources into welfare at different rates. So suppose that is right. Can we then even understand what it would be to have equality of advantage? That is, if we've got a hybrid of welfare and resources, but people convert resources into welfare in different rates, what would it even mean for two people to have that same level of advantage? That it, it would just depend how you would uh, do the conversion sum between welfare and resources. As you might have an official currency of it, an official exchange rate between welfare and resources. But by hypothesis, not everyone will convert at that exchange rate. So it looks to me like we just have now um, some sort of incoherence in the notion of equal advantage. 
Does that matter? Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, the theory is called equality of access to advantage. It's not called equality of access to equal advantage. And so there is a again, type of ambiguity in all of these theories. Equality of opportunity for. Are they equality of opportunity for equal something? Or is there a type of equality of opportunity for something that doesn't have to be equalized? It's the opportunity that has to be equalized. So how do we understand that? So I, I think in the end, what this discussion does is force us to think about the type of unclarity in the view, which you know, other people in this room will know the literature much more than I do, the recent literature in any case. But certainly, I don't know of discussions that have really tried to untangle what these views actually mean in the end, and how you could tell whether you had achieved equality of access to advantage or equality of opportunity for welfare or any of those those uh, various theories. But anyway, I think if we just restrict ourselves to the question, uh, can there be an egalitarian objection to people who shop at Fortnum's? I think there can be, but um, it does require uh, a significant complication to the theory. 